You're listening to The Tool Belt, a manufacturing podcast focusing on logistics, safety, operations, and breaking industry news. Please enjoy this audio from our live stream recorded on December 7th. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dennis Semeca. I'm the Senior Editor for Technology at Industry Week, and this is Production Pulse. Our Editor-in-Chief, Robert Schoenberger, has allowed me to hijack Production Pulse this week so we can talk about cybersecurity. What's our context here? New SEC rules mandate that companies must disclose within four days a material cybersecurity incident, with material defined by the new rules thusly there is a substantial likelihood that a reasonable shareholder would consider it important in making an investment decision. So I'm gonna crudely boil that down to, if you get hacked and the event is going to cost you or your investors money, you have four days to report the breach. Now these new rules go into effect for annual reports beginning with fiscal years ending on or after December 15, 2023, which is assumably why chemical manufacturer Clorox company on August 14th disclosed via SEC filing that the company had been hacked and that the breach was, quote, expected to continue to cause disruption to parts of the company's business operations, end quote. On September 18th, Clorox filed another report stating that the hack was contained but resulting in slower production rates and a, quote, elevated level of consumer product availability issues, end quote. The public had long since noticed the inability to find Clorox disinfecting wipes and other products on the shelves. And by early October, Clorox company's stock price had dropped by 20% since the hack was first reported. On November 7th, Clorox finally dropped the hammer and announced first quarter 2024 earnings, a 20% decline in net sales, or a $356 million decline, most of which Clorox blamed on the cyber attack. All right, so the stock has since recovered its losses. But unfortunately for Clorox company, this incident has become an object lesson about the reality of what these new SEC filing rules mean. So gone are the days of sweeping material cybersecurity incidents under the rug. This means that cybersecurity hygiene prevention is arguably more important than ever for manufacturers. Joining us today to discuss what this means for manufacturers going forward are Ryan Clotier, Chief Information Security Officer, or CISO, at cybersecurity firm Synap Tech Services, and Avi Avibi, CISO at cybersecurity firm SafeReach. Gentlemen, thank you both for taking the time to join us today to discuss these uh, this issue of increasing importance for manufacturers. Thank you. Glad to be here. Same here. So before we get into the meat of this discussion, I'd like us to define two terms that you will hear again and again in cybersecurity discussions, including our conversation today. First term is attack surfaces. Avi, could you break down for us what that means? Sure. Uh, attack surface is basically anything that the next term that will be introduced, a bad actor will go after to try and gain access into your network, your environment. Um, the thing to keep in mind, though, uh, in a lot of cases, people just think about attack surface as being something on the outside, the outside of your uh, network perimeter. The reality, anything that a, a malicious actor or a bad actor can take advantage of to attack your environment is an attack surface. That includes people. So if they try to use uh, social engineering and convincing someone to give them a password or access to the network, that person is also an attack surface. Also, if they take over, uh, the, the malicious actors take over an internal system, 
that technically can also become an attack surface. Anything that can be used to affect a, a breach is is that is an attack surface. Ryan, is there anyone add to that? Yeah, I, I mean, I like that uh, Avi touched on the the human element, right? I think it's important to understand that the number one way today that anyone is is really getting into an organization starts with the human first. They're going through uh, an employee. They're going through uh, a spouse uh, of uh, uh, someone who works at the company. So the human element's huge, um, and I think it's just being aware that. Uh, when we interact with digital technology, that's an opportunity for someone with malicious intent. So to get to the term bad actor, uh, threat actor, malicious actor, really what we're saying here is digital criminal, right? Ransomware is nothing more than extortion with a new name. Um, and so when, when those criminals, uh, you know, want to engage in crime, they're going to have to go through kind of a gatekeeper, similar to when, when um, in the old times when banks were robbed in person, you had to go through the teller to get the money out of the drawer. The same is true in your digital, where you have to go through, say, the employee's cell phone, or you have to go through their email, or uh, more common, their Facebook, Instagram, or WhatsApp, uh, to fool them into, and Avi touched on this, social engineering, so fooling that human and doing something that allows them access. So that collective group of, of people, whether they're inside the organization or outside, is known as bad actors. I prefer to call them criminals. Okay. Um, so to review, by attack services, we mean the doors someone can open from the outside to get into your network. And once mm -hmm. they are in your network, the doors they can open to get further into your network or into specific systems. And by bad actors or malicious actors, we mean cyber criminals, basically everyone trying to open those doors. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So this is my first question. Well, first real question, I guess. Let's start with Ryan on this one. What sort of attack services are bad actors most likely to target first? What are the obvious weak points that manufacturers need to shore up first and foremost when they begin to address cybersecurity? Uh, the number one space that we see most often uh, is personal devices. So that bring your own device um, policy, or as I call it, bring your own disaster. Uh, a lot of times it's the personal device or a shared device. So they're using the laptop or the cell phone for work and for personal use. And that commingling tends to be kind of that common point of entry. Uh, the other most common attack surface, if you will, especially in manufacturing, is going to be those industrial control systems, those um, what we call ICS, SCADA, or Operational Technology, OT. Uh, think of that as the little computers that control the machines, uh, but that we don't think of as computers. It's that little box that we plugged in that makes the machine run a little better. Maybe it gives us an alert. Uh, those tend to be insecure by design and insecure by default. So the, the bad actors will always go for the easiest targets. And those tend to be, uh, again, employee personal devices and uh, network equipment that is not a traditional computer. Avi, uh, would you like to add to that? What, do we, uh, what, what, uh, what are the attack services we need to worry about first? So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I agree with Ryan on, on everything that he mentioned. I think one of the, we, we see several ways that uh, attackers um, 
make their attack or their approach. And, and it's always about getting that uh, foothold into or inside the uh, your, your environment. And so that is done by uh, emails that are spoofed, phishing. You probably have heard that term. Um, there's also malicious websites that are, you know, we, we call them watering hole because people tend to go to them and they see an ad, they click on it, and all of a sudden it's malicious uh, material that allows, again, that bad actor to get a foothold into your employees' uh, laptops. And from that point on, they will start um, pivoting into your environment. And, and as uh, Ryan mentioned, typically the most vulnerable environment would be your OT environment for, for manufacturers. So we're talking emails, uh, we're talking personal devices, and we're talking the uh, operational technology, the, the machines, computers that actually uh, dictate the behavior of those machines on the floor. Those are the three main services we need to worry about. Those are the, yeah, and, and I would add that, you know, there's a, another subclass that we, we won't get into because uh, it, it's an up and coming uh, attack surface, and that's your API communications, really the, uh, the channels that systems talk to each other across different environments. Yeah, that's a conversation we've had on Industry Week as well. The idea that uh, if you're allowing like a supplier to get into your network to report information, that supplier's connection, that's an attack surface. And right. so the more people you have hooking into your network, the more you need to be aware of those as well. Right. And basically a bad actor can come into your environment through your supply chain, which is why it is important to be aware of that. And we mentioned, I, wanna, I don't want to assume everybody knows, we talk about social engineering. Uh, as a, you know, talk about phishing. So phishing, you're literally phishing for somebody's password, trying to get that information out of them. And social engineering can be, you get an email saying, oh, uh, there's a package waiting for you. Please log into the Federal Express website and give us your credentials, but it's not actually Federal Express. But if you're not careful, you might not notice that. That's an example of social engineering. Um, right. How incumbent is it on, and I'm gonna diverge here for a second, for IT departments? to give examples of what these malicious emails or what these phishing attempts look like. Like it's one thing to tell employees beware of this, but should manufacturers really be giving people examples of look out for this? Like how much training, how much detail should companies be giving their employees? It's a must. And frankly, if you're not doing phishing simulations um, to get your employees trained and uh, realizing how to recognize uh, all the red flags that tell you this is something that is probably not uh, legitimate, uh, you're doing yourself a, a very big this, uh, this favor. It's called that. You, you do have to have awareness because anyone who's connecting to the internet in any way is susceptible to those attacks. Okay. Um, a little bit of an unpopular opinion here. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I agree, users should be aware. However, uh, we are starting to see where phishing training is actually seen as a negative because you are tricking or fooling me. Uh, I'm already stressed out. And so getting this email from the IT department and then I click on it and I feel shame and embarrassment. I think often we forget the emotional component that goes into this and mm -hmm. humans being emotional creatures and their behaviors being driven by emotions I think it's important. So what I train folks on isn't so much how to identify the ever evolving and changing phishing email. For example, AI now writes email that are free of uh, grammatical error, free of 
some of the things we teach them. So what I train instead is if you did not initiate it, delete it. Mm. And if it's important, it'll come back around. I promise you, your boss is not going to let the day go by if you were supposed to do that and not follow up with you. So when you get that urgent email, first thing Monday morning, last thing Friday afternoon, these are common times that social engineering attacks happen. If it's asking you to take an action, share information, click something financial, I, I practice uh, what's called halt. Uh, so that's the time to stop and double check. Uh, halt for everyone means hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And if I'm any of those things, I do not engage with sensitive activity because I'm not at my best self. I'm more likely to make a mistake. And I think it's more valuable to teach people those habits and behaviors to teach them healthy skepticism than maybe what we've traditionally done, which is uh, try to simulate what the criminal's doing and say, now look very closely at this email and hover over this link to see this weird link. And I don't know if you guys have seen lately, but the URL shorteners make every link look like a weird link. So I, I think it's more important just to say, hey, pause if it's uh, something asking you to take action and use the phone, get up, walk down the hall, go see the person who's who's asking for that. So every, yeah, every, executive, so every executive manager on the call should know, don't send those important emails just before lunch because you won't get answers anymore once, right. once your employees are trained. And, and, and what I was going to say, I mean, this is a topic we can double click on and, and talk for hours and talk about how AI gets into that equation. At the end of the day, I think that, and, and I think we're going to pivot to another topic, but at the end of the day, it, it's one of those things that you should absolutely engage your uh, employees with, and that is awareness. Um, and, and, you know, we can debate the, the methods, but uh, it's one of those measures you can take pretty quickly, typically not at a huge expense. Uh, and, and I agree, Ryan, I, I I don't like to shame uh, employees. I like to make our and announce this is our cyber hero because he detected a phishing email and reported it. So there's there's approaches to really make it so uh, security is personal to every person in the company. Otherwise, uh, as uh, someone uh, observed on the chat, it becomes boring, and they tend to uh, ignore it. So Avi, let's. I'm going to throw this to you uh, first. This next question. So what sorts of systems do these attack services most likely give back bad actors immediate access to when they first get in? What do they have access to at that point? Well, typically what they do is they have access to IT systems, right? Your information system. If they manage to successfully fish you, fool you into clicking a link on an email that now gives the attacker access to your laptop, that laptop is on a network. And that network has access internally to other elements on that network. It might be uh, your manufacturing plant. It might, might be your HR department, your finance. It has access. And so what the uh, malicious actors are looking for is, okay, I'm now in this network. Where else can I go? Where can I now spread my control within that network? And uh, unfortunately, too many uh, organizations, especially ones that are not as uh, uh, mature in terms of their IT program, their security program, have what we call in the business a flat network. Everything is connected to the same network. Everything has the same permissions. So malicious actors have a very easy time moving from one system to another 
and really causing that impact on the company. And I think you are muted. Indeed, I was. Apologies. I was going to ask uh, Ryan, do you find the same thing that most networks are flat? So once a, a bad actor opens that first door and steps through, they're looking at all the doors? Yes, unfortunately, <clears throat> it is all too common uh, across private, public sector uh, for the network to be to be very flat. And in some cases, especially in public sector, uh, to be interconnected with other public entities. Uh, many times in my career, I have found the fire station connected to the library, connected to the county jail, connected to the K-12 public school. Because when the FCC funding for internet connection in that community through E-rate was made available, the school ran it. And then they said, well, we have all this gigabits. What do we do with it? Uh, and as you would expect, communities, you know, try to help each other out and share and so it's very common. Uh, one thing I do want to make aware uh, for the folks listening, uh, and this is a, a, a newer thing. I just uh, became aware of this last few days. Uh, some of the bad actors aren't after your data. They're after disruption and destruction. And one of the attacks that we're seeing increase is what's uh, known as a uh, printer. So they're attacking the printers specifically to induce overheating. There are certain printer models that if you ping them constantly or if you uh, attack them or even if you're a security professional and you vulnerability scan them, uh, they can actually start on fire because they don't have appropriate cooling. Uh, they have a big, a big computer processor because it was cheaper to just slap that in the printer than it was to, to build something unique. Uh, they never expected it to run at full capacity, so they never put the uh, heat transfer um, stuff in it. And so, uh, for example, a, a hospital here in my community just a couple days ago had every single printer in the building running 24 by seven because someone was attempting to see if they could find one of the ones to start on fire. So I want folks to understand this is, this isn't just about stealing data. Now it is actually about causing physical disruption as well. You talk about systems you have access to right after stepping through that first door, everybody has access, almost everybody has access to the printers. So yep. answering, answering one malicious email, wow, your printers could be on fire. It's amazing how this changes every day. Mm -hmm. um, so let's stick with you for the next question then, Ryan. So we have a bad actor. They get into the system and other than you know, setting printers on fire, it's unbelievable. Uh, what is the most material damage a bad actor could do at that point? Like after they take that first step in, what's the worst mm -hmm. they could do? Um, so for most businesses, it is a total disruption of business. It is the offlining of the business's ability to conduct business. Um, they, you know, that that's going to stop that revenue. Right. And that I think for most businesses is very concerning. If they are truly malicious in nature, they then can begin to do things such as destroy data, corrupt data, uh, use the information you have on customers and partners to then go and attack those individuals or those companies. Uh, we see this all the time in supply chain attack where a third party is first compromised and they don't actually ransom that party. They use that party as a gateway to compromise the next third party to then get to their ultimate target. So for example, if uh, target, haha, tongue in cheek here, uh, the target breach, which most everyone knows of when, when Target, the retailer, was uh, uh, attacked, it was through an HVAC vendor. 
It was through an outside third party and a piece of equipment that they had um, that allowed them to get access to, uh, to Target's network. So I think it's it's important to understand that you know the material damage could be everything from disrupting business like we, we saw in Clorox, right? Where there's a significant drop in, in the stock valuation all the way up to uh, going directly after uh, employees within the business, threatening them, threatening their family. We are seeing an increase in that now where the, the attackers, if the ransom doesn't get paid are starting to escalate uh, beyond the digital realm. So I think that's that's the big risk is, is offlining the business and then continued damage to the business's relationships through other third parties and through employees. So that's kind of what I was trying to get at. So, you know, I, I always imagine, reasonable to imagine you have someone they fish for a password, they get into a general network, but in order to do more damage, they have to hack into another different system. So maybe you have that general IT network and there's a specific network that controls the machines on the floor. Now that's a separate hack that someone needs to do. Um, but I mean, Avi, I mean, how often is that the case that you have these separate systems so they represent multiple hacks versus just this flat network, the kind of the one key opens all the doors. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Yeah. So, so sadly, it's it's more common than uh, most people think. I think you know. I do want to somewhat tame this because uh, uh, you know I'm, I'm kind of listening to this from a CEO point of view, of, and I'm like, oh my god, the sky is falling. It is falling. There is a sense of urgency. That said, there's things you can do. So, is it common? Unfortunately, it's more common than you think. And sometimes you don't even have to jump to another system because the system that you compromise actually belongs to that operator of the OT. And they also have the application that controls that manufacturing uh, equipment. And so, yes, uh, sometimes they don't need to, to go any further past the machine. They're already on. But sometimes they do need to uh, just go across and, you know, uh, Ryan mentioned printers. Uh, I, I see Luther on the chat is, is uh, having fun and he's talking about file shares. Um, you know, really anything that is shared on that network, any resource that is, is shared on the, uh, on the network is something that a malicious actor can take advantage of. Um, so, you know, the, the reality of it is the more you compartmentalize, the more you separate functionality and things like that, all that just makes it a little bit harder on the malicious actor to pivot from one system to another, find that next attack surface and go after it. Uh, and so that's part of, uh, you know, and there's, there's a lot of fancy terms that are being thrown about like um, zero trust architecture and, and all kinds of things. At the end of the day, it boils down to cyber hygiene. You know, try to make make it harder for the malicious actor to just roam your network and do whatever they want. And by cybersecurity hygiene, we mean the sum total of all practices and policies that a company has in place to protect itself from cybercrime. Basic hygiene, yes. So, you know, if you think about it, when you wash your hands uh, after going to the restroom, that's cyber hygiene in the sense that you can take similar steps, obviously not washing your uh, equipment, but you can uh, protect it uh, differently. Do some basic, take some basic steps that are really available for you already and are just not being taken advantage of. 
you know, I'll give you an example that, that Microsoft is actually forcing their users to turn on multi-factor authentication, meaning using something more than just your password. So password is one factor. And you may want to force them to say, hey, I need to also approve this on my cell phone. And most people know this already. They've done it in their, again, on their personal devices when they connect to Apple or connect to uh, Google. They're, they sometimes, if they do the right thing, uh, are forced to actually put in um, another factor that will identify them. That makes it a little bit harder. So uh, Ryan, that actually brings us to our next topic and I'll throw that to you. Um, what are the, how can we put this? What are the most immediate steps manufacturers can take to shore up the weak points we talked about, those, you know, the tax services, uh, defend the specific systems that a bad actor could get into if they get into the network and prevent the most likely types of damage that bad actors can do once they're in. So shore up weak points, defend specific systems and prevent damage. What are the most immediate steps? And by immediate, I mean realistic to fully implement within six to 12 months. What can manufacturers do right now to get started? Absolutely. So two, two main forks in this road. So the first is culture. So the very first thing, when you're done with this, you're, you're, you're a business leader, you're seeing us right now, you're listening to this information, put something on the calendar to sit down and talk to the staff. This isn't security awareness training. This is security culture. This is you showing as the leader of the business that you care about this topic, that it is paramount to your core values as an organization, that it is directly tied to the daily activities of every single uh, job and job function in your organization. And you aren't telling folks you are doing it with them. You're leading the charge. So number one, get involved, be that leader and show your staff this matters to you. It's not a technical thing at all. You don't even have to get into the details of technical, but show that you care. And the second is do an assessment. Dear God, the amount of companies that I go into that have no idea what they have, where they have it, why they have it. And, and, I, and I want business leaders to hear me when I say this, a proper risk assessment will actually save you money. The amount of redundant systems that get discovered, you find out you're paying for three different HR platforms, but you've only are using one you find out that you've got you know uh, depending on how your organization is structured it's very common to have duplicative systems or duplicative billing on the same system this uh what we call shadow it <clears throat> so somebody signs up for a cloud account with a with their credit card no with their expense card it doesn't necessarily know that so those things you can start right away culture talk to your people show them that you care get a thorough comprehensive risk assessment going right away. Uh, that can be a low cost endeavor. That can be, you know, uh, I'm not proposing that you go off and sign up for a $400,000 pen test and, and go all this. Basic hygiene. What are your policies, hygiene practices, a basic network scan, a basic vulnerability scan, just that, that initial getting started. Uh, and for those of you that are legally savvy, there's a magic word here. By doing a risk assessment, you gain this term. It's called defensibility. Because you can show that you're trying. And right now, the difference between being sued, being in the news, or being held criminally liable for uh, negligent behavior is can you show a reasonable effort? And nothing shows effort like a risk assessment. 
Now, I believe the new SEC rules also dictate that businesses in their annual reports have to talk about what's their hygiene, what are their you know, backups, what are their plans if they get hacked. Obviously, isn't that right? That's correct. And I would, I mean, that's that's literally one of the first requirements is you need to describe your risk assessment and treatment you know, and, and I would add to what Brian said is have a good and tested backup uh, program, which basically means tested restore. I see so many organizations that have backups. Oh, you have a backup system and it, it runs great, but they never test that they can actually restore from that backup, which means if something happens, their data gets corrupted, well, they're out of luck. Uh, and then the other side of it is, and I think of it as a preventative uh, measure, and then uh, the other side of it is have a business continuity plan. What happens when you get breached? Not if, but when you get breached. Can you maintain your operations? Can you resume business quickly? And what is an impact of if you do have to restore back to the last uh, restore point? Uh, so having those measures are something is, is something you can implement right away. You don't have to wait six uh, months to a year. You can work on it today. Go to your uh, IT leaders and say, when was the last time we tested the full restore? What, have we uh, thought about the worst case scenario and how do we deal with it? And what is our plan for it? And have we tested that plan? You know, it's not, it's not enough to just have a plan and say, oh, we're backing up. How do you test it? How do you make sure that they work? And then I would expand that to validate. If you have security controls, validate that they're working the way they're supposed to. Just saying I have a firewall means nothing if that firewall is not configured correctly. Same thing for antivirus. Same thing for anti-phishing uh, uh, systems. If they're not, if they just if you just bought them and put them out from the shelf into your system, that doesn't mean anything. It just means you check that box. You have a firewall. You have an antivirus. Is it configured correctly? Is it going to work when you need it? And really, that's what the SEC is looking for, is to say, you're going to need to tell us, beyond the risk assessment, what other measures have you put in to your uh, security program to make sure that you have you know, that defensibility? Or another term that is often used is that you exercise due care to protect your data, your customers' data, your operations, et cetera. All right. Um, that's all the time we have for today. This is a great discussion. I'd like to thank Ryan Clotier and Avi Avivi again for joining us today. Thanks very much for taking the time. Uh, I'm Dennis Semeca, Senior Editor for Technology at Industry Week, and this has been Production Pulse. Please join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.